Obviously, this is believed to be the greatest sports story of the 20th century, and I, like many people who were an adult at the time, can remember exactly where I was uh, when this victory took place. I was a sophomore in college, watching the game with my college roommates in the rented house that we were living in. And the reason I shared this today is because of what the Americans had to overcome in order to pull off this unbelievable upset. Basically, the Russians were professional hockey players. They averaged about 30 years of age. They were very experienced. They had tremendous coaching. Uh, their strategies were second to none. They played on big sheets of ice, which is Olympic ice, and our hockey players on the North American continent do not play on those big sheets of ice. Their conditioning was also second to none, and they were taking on an American team of true amateurs whose average age was 21 years of age. You could say it was men against boys. And uh, the Russians had played, many of them, in two to three previous Olympics. And uh, the Americans had only one player that had played in the 1976 Olympics. The Russians also had the best goalie in the world, bar none. National Hockey League, everything. He was the best goalie in the world. Now, the American team also wasn't comprised of the, even the very best amateur hockey players in America. They were the ones who took a 396-question psychological evaluation to prove who was truly teachable, who was coachable, who was willing to learn new things and a new style of hockey to play, and who would persevere and not quit when the going got tough. Now, I shared this video today because the turning point in their preparation happened in their 61-game pre-Olympic training. They traveled to Norway to play a very skilled Norwegian team, most of whom were playing on the Norwegian Olympic uh, squad. And the U.S. team at that time was every man for themselves. Uh, in fact, during the game, they were gawking at pretty girls that were up in the bleachers. They weren't even cheering their teammates on or paying attention to the game. And Coach Herb Brooks got very upset. And so after the game, he had them stay on the ice. And they did sprints back and forth, skating to the point where they were puking. And they were in utter exhaustion. The Norwegian rink managers shut the lights off to get them to leave the rink. Even the USA team doctor came over and warned Coach Brooks that he was flirting with disaster with what he was doing. But all of it was to teach them that they were playing for the name on the front of their jersey, not their personal name that was on the back of the jersey. And from that point on, every time they skated those sprints like that, which is the basketball's version of crushers that you do in basketball, the players called those Herbies, Herbies, Herbies. Well, today we're beginning a new sermon series that's going to last two Sundays called Facing Narcissism. And today we're talking about facing narcissism in a narcissistic culture. Narcissism means being self-absorbed. It means being excessively self-centered. And when the 1980 U.S. hockey team was playing for themselves, where every individual was for themselves, they were being beaten literally by every team they strapped the skates on and went out against. But when they became a team, and started looking out for each other and playing a team game, well, you know the results. They went on and literally shocked the world by winning the Olympic gold medal. And by the way, after being destroyed in the pre-Olympic training game by the Norwegians 7-3 to on that night, and then 
doing when they were doing their own thing and then skating into the wee hours of the night, doing skating sprints uh, to the point of total exhaustion, they came out the next night, played the same team, and crushed that Norwegian team. When they played together as a team, they crushed them nine to nothing. See, the price of self-absorption and of excessive self-centeredness is very high. And all of us have the seeds of narcissism within us, selfishness arrogance, denial, shame, blame. You know, where we prefer to blame others for our shortcomings, for our sins, instead of actually and truthfully examining ourselves, looking deeply within ourselves and at our sins, and then repenting of them. You know, we have two of our church lay leaders who have had an incredible ministry the last couple of decades with those that have addictions, addictions to alcohol, to drugs, and other various bad habits and hurts and hangups. And they call narcissism being addicted to yourself. Being addicted to yourself. Well, as a culture, America is an extremely narcissistic culture. So many today are simply out to get what they can get for themselves. There seems to be very little concern for one's fellow citizens or neighbors. So many feel so entitled as if others owe them a certain quality and certain standard of life, regardless of their own merit, regardless of their own personal responsibility or their own work ethic. And one of the examples of this right now is the average activist that's out there. The average disruptor and violent demonstrator right now in many of our nation's cities, here's what it is, is a 26-year-old, college-educated, woke, white woman. And this is who's primarily pushing for the defunding of police in our nation. It's not the actual people who are living in many of these inner cities that are ravaged by crime and violence that's driving this narrative. It's the outsiders saying, we, we know how to save you. We're the enlightened ones. We know how to rescue you from what you're experiencing. You know, one of the many tragic stories out of the riots in Minneapolis three months ago that absolutely broke my heart, was an indigenous people's nonprofit organization that had spent countless years raising money, seeking donations, writing grants to purchase a building in Minneapolis and then remodel it and turn it into a Native American youth center. And when the riots started, they wrote on the front windows of their building, Native American youth center. And they had eight of their Native American, you know, youth center workers standing out front trying to deter the agitators and the rioters from doing any damage to their building, and they destroyed the building and burned it down anyway. Even though they were supposedly against racism and against any kind of police brutality and any kind of violence and all these things, the violence that they committed against that Native American group and the Native American Youth Center was extremely racist. Now, the lady who had spearheaded that fund, fundraising and who had worked tirelessly for many years uh, to create this Native American Youth Center, the very next day knelt in front of that center that was burned to the ground, crying her eyes out. And she kept saying over and over again, we tried to tell them we were on their side. We tried to tell them we were on their side. Folks, there is no being on the side of a narcissist. Because one of the definitions of a narcissist 
is they lack empathy and are unable to see the pain of others. See, narcissists have an exaggerated sense of their own importance and believe their views and their ideas are the only right ones and are frankly beyond debate. Such people exaggerate their own importance, their own power, their own success, and their own brilliance. They think that somehow their love is an idealized love, and anyone else's is simply second rate. Well, we're talking today about facing narcissism in a narcissistic culture. And at its core, narcissism is the desire to be above everyone else. In Greek mythology, narcissist was the one who was so in love with himself that when he saw his reflection in a pool of water, he couldn't stop staring at himself to the point where he couldn't even leave. And he actually ended up starving himself to death. Of course, the moral of this mythological account is that the destruction that comes into people's lives when they get completely full of themselves. Interestingly, people who struggle with narcissism tend to become more likely to be involved in affairs, sometimes multiple affairs, and sometimes several affairs at the same time. They also have a much higher rate of divorce, as well as problems with white-collar crime and crime in general, and narcissism is also the precursor to many forms of addiction and many forms of abuse, especially domestic abuse. People who struggle with narcissism have an exaggerated sense of their own importance, and they tend to exploit people to their own ends. They believe that they deserve special favors, a strong sense of entitlement, if you will, but they have no inclination whatsoever to return any favors to anyone. Often they come across as very charming, but the opposite is actually true. They can be quite mean, and if you try to correct them, get ready for the sky to fall. Let me share with you 10 diagnostic questions to help you evaluate if you personally struggle with narcissism or if you're, you know somebody or you're close to somebody who's narcissistic. Number one, do they seem irritated or angry with you, although you never meant to upset them? Second diagnostic question related to this first one, have you ever been confused by their anger? It's like, what? Where did that come from? That doesn't make sense. Number three, have you ever been perplexed or frustrated by their responses because you could not get them to understand your intentions? No, no, this is what I meant. Here's what I was trying couldn't get them to understand that. Number four, has this person made you feel like you are mostly wrong and they are always right? Question five, does this person minimize or deny wrongdoing or blame you saying, well, I wouldn't have done this if you wouldn't have done that? Number six, do you feel like you walk on eggshells around this person? and you are careful to avoid conflict. Question seven, does this person ever call you bad names or put you down? Number eight, does this person ever try to define or explain your feelings, your opinions, your needs, or your, they're trying to tell you what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. You ever run into people like that? Number nine, 
Has this person ever acted jealous or possessive of you? And question number 10, have they ever tried to manipulate or intimidate you? See, the core of narcissism is this desire to be above everyone else. It's 100% focusing on oneself. And it's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden when the evil one tempted them. Remember the evil one said to Eve, well, God didn't really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. And Eve says, well, well, just the one in the middle. Now, theologians are very good at portraying the original sin there as pride when Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit. But please do not miss the narcissism that is there, the desire to be great, that desire to make themselves be more significant, to be, as the evil one said, like God. See, there are many examples of narcissism in the Bible. Absalom, David's son, arranged the murder of his older brother Amnon, who was in line for the throne. In that sense, he would have been a competitor of Absalom. And Absalom also used his eloquence and his manipulative charm to win the hearts of the common people of Israel and thus undercut his own father, David's honor and authority. Sadly, Absalom used all of his gifts and all of his talents for himself. And you can read all about that on your own this week in 2 Samuel chapters 13, 14, and 15. In Acts chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, we have a story there about a sorcerer named Simon. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 for you, but listen for narcissism that you hear in this text. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. In our text for today, James chapter 4, uh, I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 4. And uh, in that passage, listen again for the emphasis that's about the individual and what the individual wants in life. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Isn't that where it all comes from? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill, you covet, you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you don't ask God. You're not going to the right source. And when you ask, when you do ask, you do not receive because what? You ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures, on yourself. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Friendship with the world and living and doing what the world is doing is not a good thing. It puts someone in an adversarial role with God. See, our culture is totally addicted to itself. Do you know that they estimate right now that everybody that's walking around with a smartphone in America, that 80% of the pictures that are on their phones are selfies? Of themselves! 80% 
our selfies. If people need an expert advice in our culture, you know who they tend to go to first? They go to themselves. Or then they consult with their friends and acquaintances, all of whom usually agree with them anyway. And when most people in our culture walk past a mirror, they do a double take, take a second look. And whenever people are part of a group picture, when they look at that picture, who do they look for first? They look for themselves. And if they look good in the picture, then the picture's okay. But if they don't look good, it doesn't matter if everybody else in the picture looks really good. It's a bad picture because they didn't look good. See, many people in our culture are obsessed with themselves. They're thinking that they're better, that they're smarter, that they're better looking, that they're more deserving, or that they're the most competent person in the room. And overall, there is a lot of people in our society who are simply arrogant. And the classic sign of narcissism in our society is this entire victim status mantra. Contrast this to periods in our culture where it was all about what is best for our nation or what's best for our state or our city or our community, uh, our neighborhood. The group was more important than any one individual. The village, the tribe, the troop, the family all meant something. Now, it's all about the individual. You know, it's, life has become all about me in America. What is best for me and mine? And contrast this rugged Western individual, individualism with other cultures in the world, like many Asian countries right now, where the honor of the nation and the honor of their fellow countrymen supersedes anything related to the individual. Now, we have a man in our church who had a younger brother when they were growing up who was an absolute rebel. His brother struggled in school. He had brushes with the law where they grew up in Chicago. He even took a few vehicles without their owner's permission and wrecked them in accidents and got in further trouble. He didn't really even complete high school, went into the military, got his GED. Meanwhile, the older brother excelled at school, graduated from a, 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 a private college and went on and got a master's degree from that private college. And then it went and earned a doctorate degree and had a very highly distinguished professional career. Both of them are retired right now. But this younger brother ended up finding the perfect job. He worked for Underwriters Laboratory in Northbrook, Illinois. That's the company UL approved, you know, that tests all products to see if they're safe if they do what the manufacturers or the, you know, the engineers say they will do, you know, if they're fireproof, all those kinds of things. And they even work in 46 different countries around the world. Well, guess which job this younger brother specialized in? Cracking safes. Engineers would design safes. And then he was allowed to go to a hardware store, get any tools or products that you can pick up from an average hardware store. And if the safe said eight hours it would take to break into the safe, and of course they fireproof test them and all those things too. But if it took eight hours to break into that safe, most of the time he could do it ahead of that. He loved his job. This was his dream job, cracking safes. Well, one time they went to Japan to do it. And these engineers had said that it'll take four hours to break into the safe. Well, him and his partner broke into that safe in two and a half hours. And, and then they went to meet with the, the developers of the safe, and the, many of the engineers were there. They came into the room, and all of these Japanese engineers were standing with swords and knives to their chest. And, and this man in our church's younger brother was 
all shook up. Don't, 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 don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. You know, and then he gave them some recommendations and suggestions on how they could improve their product. Now, that's an extreme example of how people care so much about the honor of their company or the honor of their group or the honor of their people. But I share it with you today to contrast with America that's the very opposite extreme where every person is out for themselves. Our society is where people are out to get attention for themselves. And in so doing, they will often use other people for their own benefits and using others to make themselves look and feel better. Now listen what the Apostle Paul said times would be like in the last days, or the end times, as he was telling the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. This is going to be horrible times. This is how bad it's going to be in the last days. People will be narcissistic. They will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And here's the recommendation. Actually, here's the command. Here's the direction. Have nothing to do with such people. See, friendship with this kind of world, with this kind of culture, never works out very well for the Christian. In fact, it usually ends very badly. If a person goes through life, like so many in America, only thinking about themselves... What does this say about all of their relationships? What does this say about their friends, their spouse, their children? And by the way, everybody who's close to a narcissist, they know exactly how self-absorbed and self-centered they truly are. And what is the impact? What does this self-centered individualism, what kind of impact does this have on a person's relationship with God? See, in such a lifestyle, there's no room for others, and there's no room for God. And I want you to understand something really important here today. The basis of narcissism is shame. The tip of the iceberg that we see above the waterline is narcissism. But the mammoth iceberg that's beneath the waterline is shame. Shame drives narcissism. And by the way, all addictions, all of them begin with shame. It's not simply a night of overdrinking that causes somebody's drinking problem, or a night of hookups that causes their sexual addiction, or a night of dabbling in drugs that causes their drug addiction, or a, a, a night of binge porn watching that, that all of a sudden they just become addicted to pornography. It all starts with a sense of lack, with a sense of limitation. It's a desperate attempt on people's part at self-salvation because the tank is empty and people are trying to fill it with that which does not satisfy. Adam and Eve had everything in the garden, but thanks to the evil one's influence, they perceived that they were missing something. They were lacking something, that there was some kind of limitation in their life. So they took their own 
personal satisfaction into their own hands. And instead of embracing their created God-given limits, they did what they thought was in their best interest. Now, you might be thinking today, okay, pastor, I get what you're saying. I get that. I understand that about shame. But we're living in a shameless culture right now. People don't feel shame anymore. Isn't that the whole problem? People don't feel shame, pastor. So nice sermon, but it's not going anywhere. Uh, but they do whatever they want. That's what people do nowadays. As the Bible said in, in the book of Joshua, it's like it was written today. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You're correct in your assessment. Shame is actually decreasing in the Western world. And people are also getting very good at suppressing their shame. But do you know what is the most frightening thing of all? People are the most prone to act out when they are out of touch with their shame, unaware of their own limitations, unfamiliar with the deep questions that are lurking below the water line. And when people are out of touch with themselves, out of touch with their own hearts, their own habits, their own hurts, their own hang-ups, their own feelings, and their own personal story, that is when they will tend to live life on earth using others and using things to try and meet these deep needs in their life. The result of all of this self-love, living this narcissistic life, is bitterness. And the idolized self always leaves a bitter taste in one's mouth. Dr. Chuck DeGroote, a Christian therapist who has specialized on the issue of narcissism, writes about when someone is discovered living two different lives. And he says, we often say the perpetrator has a double life. I, however, say they have a quadruple life. They have the public self that we present to the world. They have the private self that we share selectively with others. There's the blind self that is clear to others, but which remains hidden to us. And then there's the undiscovered self, which like a shadow contains conscious and unconscious aspects of ourselves. And those who explore their inner lives and explore their family of origin stories are often, he says, the most self-aware. They're the ones who are living congruent lives of integrity and wholeheartedness. But those who lack curiosity about themselves and remain largely out of touch with their own feelings, needs, and unconscious motivations are the ones, he says, who are the most likely to project their hidden rage outwardly onto others. The core of narcissism is this desire to be above others. And our culture is full of it. And as Christians, we are not to buy into that. This is how we're to face narcissism in a narcissistic culture. Remember, it says, in the end times, mark this, the days are going to be so terrible. People will be lovers of themselves, have nothing to do with them. That doesn't mean we don't witness. doesn't mean we don't relate or, or try to encourage or help people along that way. It means that we do not adopt what they're doing. Like Hebrews or uh, Romans, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 12 says, do not be conformed to this world but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may test and prove what God knows is good, pleasing, and perfect will. We have to become self-aware so that we do, you know, in order to prevent any kind of self-absorption. And above all, 
we must learn to focus on how great God is and not on how great we want to Would you please join me? God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to address an important subject in our society. Lord, we live in a free society, but when people have the levels of freedom that we enjoy and have enjoyed as a country, it's easy to take advantage of that and along the way, take advantage of others. And God, our human nature, our fleshly nature, wants to exalt itself. It wants to be important and significant, and it goes all the way back to the fall in the original sin in the Garden of Eden. So God, we come by this very naturally. But Lord, uh, having that basis and also living in the society we live in, it's so easy to get drawn into that when we have so much and so much opportunities. But I pray God for the church in these terrible days that we find ourselves living, that we can be godly Christian people that you call us to be. That we would not be trans, that we would not be deformed, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God, you do that through your Holy Spirit. I pray that we, each one of us, may experience that and go out and live that in this world. To your honor, Lord, and God.